Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Mangum Reads, as we continue through our third part of the fifth season, a terrifically tailored and tremorous tale of the travels and travails of a triumvirate of terribly tectonically talented teammates, together in all but time. A tyke in training, a tenacious and somewhat trenchant 20-something, the third in tumult and turmoil as she traces and tracks the trail of her taken tot over torn terra in the throes of total and terminal tragedy. With, with you, as always, is Spencer and my two teammates, BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing? Good, Spencer. The tintinabulation of your tone is thrilling. <laughs> I do enjoy when we keep to the letter as we go through this thing. <laughs> I, uh, as well, am duly impressed, but I'm going to stray away from, from the T for, for the moment um, before I try and go through any tongue twisters and, and get trouble with them. I have no idea what I'm to do next week because I started with quakes. I then moved to I started with seismic, then I moved to quakes. Now I did tremors. I am out of words that have to do with earthquakes. I'm I sure you'll know. figure something out. It's getting hard. Over the last two weeks, we have covered the first two of the major character arcs over the course of our story, starting with Demaya, continuing through Cyanite, and now on to who is the ultimate end of our timeline of our arcs, but really the first character we get to explore, Essun. Now, we've already revealed over the course of our last two podcasts that the nature of this story is following the same character over three different points in her life. As soon as the farthest most in time, I set, and this is going to be a point of debate, but I think it's probably set about 15 to 20 years after. Whoa, um, whoa there, you, <laughs> you, you don't think it's that far in the future? Nope. I mean, it describes her as being middle-aged. Uh, so it's, and from what we know about Cyanide's character, she was probably in her early to mid-twenties. Um, now this being a somewhat pre-modern world, middle age is a flexible term, but I figured she was at least in her late thirties, early forties. I'm impressed that you've decided that it's pre-modern, um, but we it's, do know that she has yes. a very young child and has had two children, and while maybe, uh, middle age is being you know generous and things like that i'm guessing two children in her late 30s is would be fairly uncommon and the likelihood that she'd find a mate and sort of all those other things i guess i sort of assumed maybe early 30s that it was like a maybe five-year gap um or you know almost directly after the last where we ended with cyanite because that's how the story was told that, you know, the end of Damaya was cyanide. So I, I, th- I would think that she is in her late 30s as well. And I think part of the reason that I think that is um, I'm not sure that we get a particularly good understanding of how old her daughter, who um, is taken by her father um, away in this narrative. I don't yeah, I don't, um, we don't really get a sense of how old she is in this novel, but in the second novel, we do get more of a sense of that, and she is probably six to eight years old. Um, so if I'm remembering correctly, um, and I think I am, and my impression is that her son is maybe three to four years old. Um, so we're already getting at least a sort of eight-ish year gap, um, if you assume that that um, Esun has to find her husband, kind of settle in somewhere, get pregnant, have a child. Um, and I think that it is, you know, I think it's a, a little different. Did we talk last week about how long we think Cyanite and Alabaster were on the island? 
Because like it's Based on, several years. No, it has to be a couple years. Yeah. I mean, she was pregnant at the time that she arrived at the island, it seemed. Um, and right. the child, I think by the end, is two, three? Yeah, um, talking but not like a person. So, yeah, a substantial period of time. So we're talking about Sina, I mean, again, based on our best guesses of how old these characters are, probably being in her mid-20s. Yeah. Maybe a little bit later by the time her story ends. By the time her story ends, yeah. We had talked about her as maybe early 20s, late teens, early 20s, even potentially at the beginning of her arc. Um, But I don't think we had talked about kind of where she got to at the end of it. Um, So I I would put S in maybe mid to late 30. Yeah, I, I, I guess the given sort of how things are structured and the whole like there are breeders and and stuff like that her getting old enough would mean i guess in my mind that she wouldn't fit into a com and wouldn't easily get married Mm -hmm. um and it seemed like she married a well-respected or at least semi-respected strongback and also was was he a strongback uh i think so I, th- I thought he was, um, I forget the term, oh. uh, some variety of maker or something. Yeah, I don't remember I, what the like, term is either. Well, he was a, a oh, stone napper or whatever, but I didn't know because there were I, only a certain number of use cat whatever. Yeah, it's strongback, resistance, breeders, innovators, and I guess there's a leadership one too, though mm-hmm. we only meet a couple members of that cast. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I don't think he was an innovator. There, was, there are GMSs. I think he was a resistant, if I remember correctly, but uh, details to ponder over. Um, Um, But she also caught the eye of a relatively young doctor. And, you know, while I'm I'm not saying like this is impossible, but I'm going with like what's likely that her being, you know, closer to her 40s seems like it'd be unlikely that a young doctor bachelor wanted to get into her pants. (laughs) It, um, one thing that we're left to ponder to a certain degree, and this may explain some of it, is how long she had been in the com. Um, the fact, when we find yeah. Asun, we don't really get a clear explanation of how much time has passed or how she's arrived necessarily where she is. When we first meet Asun, we have no idea who she is in terms of how she links in with the rest of the story. But we know that she's been with this com long enough that she's seemingly presided over about a generation of children growing up, including the doctor. That she, he's essentially grown up with her around, which is part of the reason in my mind that I figured that she'd been around for quite a bit of time, even if she hadn't been with Gigi and formed a family for quite the same period of time. Gotcha. But, um, so I feel like before we get too far in, we should describe the uh, jarring discomfort that is starting this book, <laughs> or at least for me. Which apparently, from what you were saying, Sarah, is just rather uh, stylistic than Kay Jameson and how she prefers to write. Yeah, that's... Um, that's true. And as I was telling you both off air, I started reading um, another one of her books today from an entirely different series set in an entirely different world. Um, and she does some of the same things. So there are also relatively early in the book, these kind of interludes that are very stylistically different. Um, in fact, also typographically different. And... Um, are equally as mysterious, I would say. Yeah, she's definitely a writer that very much enjoys the idea of having her readers kind of discover the story as she goes rather than any extensive introduction, extensive explanation. She's very content that she will give you enough that you will find your way, even if it is not, if, even if it is not immediate. And this story is no exception. That For one, we'll just even skip the point that we start with the end of the world having absolutely no idea what is happening. Uh, in terms of two characters sitting on a hillside, blowing apart the uh, bastion of civilization and the rest of the world around it. Yeah, that's and, 
That's the prologue. That's the prologue. And from there, we then go, again, without explanation. And again, it is jarring to start because we start with you. Is that you are sitting on a hillside basically grieving over your dead son. Yeah. Uh, Which is already a a hell of a way to start a book in terms of leaving your reader to catch up. And so from the from the outset, did you all have thoughts about kind of like who this you was? Like how did like where were you in that kind of discovery process? I was fairly lost. Um, I didn't know. I well, as again, you sort of vaguely talked about off air. So in the first paragraph, you're you're told that it the Tarimo is a town, um, and then shortly thereafter. You know, it says that you're an origin, and you don't know what that is. Um, it also says you're 42. Vindication for me. Oh, that's yeah. right. I forgot about that. That's totally where that comes from. <laughs> and and you've been living there for 10 years. Um, yeah, it just yep. Resistant use cast. Very good, Spencer. All all kinds of things that you got right. Um, <laughs> Part of the reason I I literally. This first chapter was so shocking for me in terms of me being put in the mindset of the character. I started dwelling over each detail being important because they were me. Because they were aspects of me being described. That Bridget can comment on this. I literally started going memento with little sticky notes I was putting on the wall to describe aspects of me. <laughs> um, I, I think it might not have impressed on me as much because I listened to it. And so that could be. it was very immersive. Mm-hmm. where you know the book was talking like and telling me like what was happening or what was happening but it, it was very just like i felt maybe the same or at least some sense of confusion that the main character feels and just like I was very disconnected with the things around her and it's a really interesting well done thing that she does about this where we talked about how demise chapters work so well in terms of exploring entering the world because she is a child who is very much seeing outside of her community and seeing how the world operates for the first time um for exploring a soon's chapter it makes sense that we're going in here with broken incomplete thoughts and confusion just laced with brief images of pain because that's the mindset she's starting this story with where she's a woman who is literally on the verge of well, not even burging. She has lost it in, the, in these moments from the pain of what she's experienced, from finding her son murdered on the floor without any degree of explanation for what has happened. That as we are going through her little broken, jagged collections of thoughts, which are mostly just descriptions of the immediate world around her and herself, it's almost like we are with her returning to a certain degree of consciousness and awareness. And so it makes a wonderful transition into the story of where we are lost, but we're seemingly finding it again with her as we go. And that continues throughout her chapters as we get a much more complete sense of her and the world and her journey as we go uh, from the very broken and jagged collection of uh, symbols that we start off the story with. Yeah, and I think to your point, Spencer, one of the like real stylistic sort of tour de forces of this book is the way that Jemison implicates you as a reader and really subtly brings you along I mean, other than sort of interpolating you as you, um, but brings you along yeah. in this sort of journey of not really healing, because I don't know that we get to like a healed point at any moment. Um, but that kind of like, I don't know, I had the sense of like your hearing is returning after, um, mm-hmm. you know, you've been too close to a firework or something like that. Mm-hmm. that yeah, very much that. Uh, just piecing together shattered 
uh, to, for lack of a better word, uh, parts of what, what was a, a whole psyche. And, and it's very definitely a recurring theme of, you know, we can't deal with that right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're uncomfortable with going down that line of thought. And that comes up chapter after chapter after chapter, sort of until the reader finds out about the history and the linking to a certain extent of these characters and then it's sort of at that point that you start making those history connections that you then go oh okay so that's the part that Esun is not thinking about and Mm -hmm. not dealing with and as you find that out she starts to be able to deal with those things Mm -hmm. again. In terms of what we learn about her in these initial broken thoughts um what can we say about where this is so weird referring to this character as three people, but we'll just keep referring to her as Asun. What do we learn about what Asun has done in terms of where she has been and what has led her to this point that she is now so far removed from where we left her as cyanide? I remember correctly, as you described, BJ, it's been at least 10 years she's spent in this com in the Midlats. She is now in her early 40s. She's seemingly worked as a teacher for many years and most arguably shock, shocking enough, given where we left her, she has formed a new family with a, a resistant and had two children. Yeah. And, well, that's the funny thing, that, like, I guess we're, we're picking up where we left off last episode, but Esun has a family, and that's the first chapter. So there's yeah. no shocking that she has, that, that this 42-year-old woman has, uh, you know, two, or had two young children, has, you know, doesn't know where one is, and, and one is dead, but, like, there's this 42-year-old teacher that has some murky past. Yep. Uh, so the, the, the shocks in reading it are the same shocks the character has, rather than what we get now in retrospect looking back through where this arc is now gone. Yes. The, the, the initial shocks are, you know, be, so, describing her, describing her son, describing her house. Oh, right, her son is dead on the floor. Uh, <laughs> describing this horrendous shock that destroyed the community. There must be a Raga there. Oh, right, you're that Raga. Describing a hillside, it's partially collapsed. There's a geode available. A, a small child has emerged from the geode and is now eating it. It's a collection of just shocks that come one after the other and after the other for these early chapters that we go through as we just slowly start to unlock who the hell we are and what is going on in the world. Yeah, um, and I think that there's sort of a couple of things that knowing what you know by the end of the book, and I think it is mentioned at some point that... Um, basically there was a massive seismic event uh, somewhere I think to the north somewhere essentially relatively nearby and I believe that it is indicated at some point and I don't remember if it's here or not that um, it was Uche that essentially caused this massive catastrophe yeah so Esun's son um, and very small son um, is the one that we find that Esun and we as Esun um, find on the floor dead. Um, and it becomes very cl- it becomes clear relatively early that Esun knows um, obviously there has been um, this sort of seismic activity. It has been pretty significant. Um, and yet this town has been left untouched. Um, so do you think gonna, it I'm was... Gonna... Go ahead, Spencer. Well, I, mean, I, I, I want to hear what you're about to say, because I was about to challenge you on your description of uh, Uche being responsible. But let me hear what your question was going to be. Okay, so so well then, there's the, like, 
was there a cataclysmic event and the surviving of the calm is directly tied to Uche and there was some sort of Taurus that was involved and that's what tipped people off or was well it's what tipped um Jija Uche's father off oh that that a Taurus formed well that the that the town was left untouched right right okay I mean that was the that was the precipitating event to his murder right do I remember that wrong I mean, it, it's, a, it's a debate that the main character goes through throughout a large portion of the story as why Jija did this, what set him off, what finally put him in the know that at least one of his children is an origin. Because the timing doesn't work. She even says that at a certain point. Yeah. The timing doesn't work for Uche having been responsible because this event happened after seemingly that occurred. Uh, or some, or the t- timing's not perfectly fit with it. That. I don't even think she says that he stopped it, because I think at one point she even talks about that she, even in her tor- tormented state, kind of just distantly stopped it with a thought as it was going by. Um, but from what I remember, and this book is so dense and so multi-layered, there's everything we and talk we about finished subject it like a month ago. <laughs> there's that too. Yeah. Um, that the catastrophe that occurred was in, uh, at least around this com. which does anyone remember the name of the com? I don't at all. Um, it's Tiramo. Tiramo, yeah. Tiramo, you're right. Uh, was the same catastrophe we started the story with, that essentially the threads out from that, from the equator, have spread everywhere, and that pretty much all the surrounding communities around were destroyed but Tiramo because there was a, a origin there to stop it, which immediately clues everyone in the surrounding community into the fact that there must be an origin here because we're alive. And this being a twisted and terrifying world, their immediate response is, Okay, we're alive because there's an origin here. We must kill them. Which I guess, like, and I, that sort of whole process doesn't make sense to me because, like, the the quelling of shakes yeah. doesn't cause a Taurus. It's instinctual and basic. Yeah, they don't describe it's, it as so, right. So drawing out power or something doesn't seem to necessitate a Taurus. It's like using power to do something. And so mm-hmm. if quelling shakes. Per, like automatically like made tauruses of of different sizes the node stations would just be like death rings I, I agree and i think the main character of the course of the story presents about three different theories in her own head what may have clued jija in that uche was an origin and she's not certain about what which of them is true okay um, i, I, I guess don't think I she ass- ever i don't think she ever reaches a, a comfortable conclusion as to I assumed that Uche had something to do with the semi-cataclysmic event and also that this semi-cataclysmic event was separate from what we had in the prologue. I didn't read it that way. I read them as being linked, but okay. I, no, no way of knowing if I'm right or wrong. Oh, I thought they were yeah. different. I thought the prologue and what is happening in the first chapter proper were not the same event. Maybe the first chapter or the prologue is uh, making him. So um, anyway, so... We've sort of skirted around this, but um, I think it's in the first chapter that it fairly clearly states that Esun has is sure that her husband killed her young her younger son, mm-hmm. and the older child is missing. Is missing, and that she is convinced that her husband has essentially kidnapped her older daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, she sort of 
again goes into this dissociative state and sleeps maybe um and uh the calm doctor essentially shows up and is just like you need to like leave your house and not like try and take care of your dead son and eat and or drink something uh like let me help you Mm -hmm. and slowly with his help she kind of finds herself again and with that burial taking place with a fifth season rapidly descending upon the calm and the calm preparing for that she starts to get herself ready to set out on a task where perhaps to escape from the pain of the moment or at least find some solution explanation absolution for it she for the course of this of her arc dedicates herself to tracking down her husband jija and asking him what well (laughs) confirming with him what happened presumably killing him and then also possibly most importantly rescuing her daughter of where she does not know whether jija realizes that her daughter is an origin um and at this point early in the story has no idea with certainty that her daughter is still alive just that Jija and the daughter disappeared at the same day at the same time, with the townspeople not thinking anything of it. But she feels an absolute unconditional need to go pursue them and in and find a solution to this. Um, and it's an awkward time to go about starting to do that, because as a result of this cataclysmic event that has shaken the world, as the earthquakes have destroyed all the surrounding communities, the leadership of the town is certain a new fifth season is upon them, and they've begun the lockdown process with respect to that, which basically means no one in, no one out. As well as the town's on high alert that the fact that they're still alive indicates there's an origin present and therefore the Dee must die. Yeah. Not Uh, the best condition to be marching around trying to leave in. I was... I can't remember if we've discussed this and and I feel like this might be along the things that we talk about in the uh, fourth episode where we just sort of generally go over all all the questions and confusions that we have with absolutely no answers, but (laughs) we can discuss it anyway. Um, Which is, at what point did you realize that fifth season was just they decided that there was another season because the regular progressions of the four seasons at some point got completely fucked up and so it's a fifth season uh well i'll start it took me a damn while where they were continually using the term and i got after a while what it referred to helped by the little prologue points that for uh, the little intro notes for each chapter every now and then are little italicized sections that talk about the various historical fifth seasons. I got what a fifth season was, but it took a long time before the term was, I'd say almost half or even a little bit longer in the story before I really had a firm concept. Yeah, I don't It's I don't remember um, necessarily because on a sort of second reading, you obviously already know, so I don't remember where it happened um, for me on the first on the first reading. Um, once you are going back, I think that all of the kind of clues are there for you to pick up on what a fifth season is relatively early, but they seem so trivial um, that why would you pick up on them that early without knowing to look for them? Um, so, like, it's it's interesting because it's there, um, but it, it is certainly not put together in a coherent kind of legible form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Um, after Larna, the doctor that has the hots for her, kind of rescues her, um, and I, it seems like she sort of briefly considers, like, having more of an interaction with him, but it's also, like, he's young and, like, needs to, like, continue in this calm, and so I should get out of here before, like, anything else goes on from here. Um. He particularly reveals that he knows what she is, too, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and he's known for a while which i think it's another motivation on her part to get the hell out of dodge because that 
is dangerous to him to have to cover for her in moments like this. Yeah, it seem, it does seem to be like really motivated by, as you said, Spencer, the danger brought to him. I mean, he, is, he has proved himself sort of unknowingly on her part as like a real friend and ally in the fact that he has mm-hmm. kept the secret for so long. Um, but now we are living in much more dangerous times. This this is a world very much built around the principle of thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Mm -hmm. Um, And anyone who harbors them or in any way provides for them is equally suspect or even potentially guilty. So she's aiming to leave. He... I love the little first tidbits we get of Stone lore throughout all of this, which is, again, not expo- not clearly set out or explained at any point, but at this point we're just kind of grasping at straws. The, the, the pack that she, of course, has set aside for traveling because it's an aspect of the Stone lore that you would have this ready for each member of your family. Uh, she assembles together the ne- necessary essentials from the other packs because her family isn't needing them uh, and goes to meet with the leader of the Com, which proves a very interesting conversation in large part because this is one of the few uh, stills, forgive the slur, that we meet over the course of the story, that if he has any degree of prejudice, it is not a violent one, and he has a very pragmatic view of the whole situation with respect to her being an origin. Yeah, and he's kind of like, so the leader of, of the calm kind of goes, oh, okay, well, you know, you've been a productive member of society for a while, and... The last thing we need before, you know, the aftershakes and all of the insanity that's going to go along with this sets in (laughs) is a bunch of people, you know, leading a mob and torching you every, you know, everything that you ever touched and basically, you know, becoming an insane mob. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm more than happy to escort you out of the walls and, you know, let's let's get you on your way, Um, which he kind of does in in a fairly straightforward fashion he he walks to the door he orders them to open it go on get going yeah Yeah. um go on get going and then all of the guards kind of go okay but wait we've put two and two together right um and so basically the guards go like wait a minute she's an origin Maybe she caused the problems that we're having now. Why don't we kill her? Because that makes the most sense. Um, and I believe they turn on her with crossbows. The first one does, yeah. Um, uh. And she... This is sort of the first glimpse of what an origin's power is. Other than sort of the descriptions of they have something to do with cataclysmic activity. Mm-hmm. Or, or at least seismic activity. And there's your uh, other letter seismic i I, I already did s you did did s's oh that's unfortunate Um, yeah yeah. i'll I'll think of something i'll give you the g's for geiger Uh, um no this isn't radiation what am i gonna do Uh, Uh, but i mean in this um this depiction we see of um orogeny is in some ways much more effective and gritty and real than we see in the first chapter because it's much more grounded in the individual experience we see its individual effect on those around her when we yep. see somebody literally crack the world asunder, it doesn't affect us quite as much because it falls into the trap of so much magic and fantasy of where it is too big. It is too world-changing. Mm-hmm. It is, there's, there's no way to really conceptualize it or make it in any way grounded in the human experience when somebody can literally, at a call and a word, rend the crust of the world asunder. So this, did we actually get that 
that was an origin. Uh, we don't know at the time, I don't think. We yeah, I don't, it's a guy I don't know it. that we had it at the time. I think this is the first time that we had like a described origin doing something. It, it, it's reasonable enough to piece back, but I don't right. think we have a description of origin, orogeny then. But here we see it play out of where she effortlessly just knocks the crossbow bolt out of the air. And then in a fit of rage, in a fit of blaming the entire community for what she's endured, for the culture they've allowed to manis- manifest and express itself in what her husband did to her son, she declares them all to blame and all of them forfeit and proceeds to start to lay waste about her. She uh, pulls, activates so her- she pulls the heat out of the air around her and creates a torus. A torus and, and icing freezing Taurus, an icing circle. And I feel like this is the first description that we had. And mm-hmm. I also, um, and I probably should have, you know, touched up on this, but I feel like it got to be pretty freaking big before she was like, wait a minute, I shouldn't kill everybody. I mean, it seemed like her, I mean, activating the Taurus is drawing the energy out of the air, but and she does that to flash freeze the immediate guards around her, including, very sadly, the leader who'd originally protected her and wanted to just get her safely out of town. But she also uses it to direct the energy elsewhere, into the earth. And we see the command over tectonics that helps explain the first uh, prologue that we saw, as she proceeds to rather arbitrarily, well, not arbitrarily, rather intentionally, kill the calm. She breaks their water catch. She breaks their supply of water that will allow them to persist. She shatters their stores under the ground. She breaks their buildings. She renders this calm in a state it does not yet know, but will know soon, lifeless, while at the same time slaughtering those around her. And so so mm-hmm. I feel like she doesn't go crazy, crazy, because Lerna appears later. Lerna appears much. Well, most of the immediate damage to people is, is around her. The damage right. to the fundamentals the of the itself, city... Right are not immediately apparent and not in a way that's really harmful, but I don't know what she would have continued to do. I don't think she knows what she would have continued to do if her thoughts had not been interrupted by seeing the human experience of what the results of her actions were as she sees a family running for cover. Yep. Uh, and that moment, that connection to her own experience, her what she's got herself going through, snaps her back to reality, and she walks off into the walks off into the sunset with uh, a very stinging thought in her head about where the monster always is it is you yep um and spencer what i was going for is richter thank you (laughs) um anyway so so that's sort of her first chapter i think she sort of wanders off and then fairly quickly goes to sleep Mm -hmm. um and then when she wakes up there's a young child there (laughs) Seemingly, though it's not made immediately clear, the young boy that we saw emerge from a geode in a little side chapter um, as we were going through the initial part of Asun's story, um, who we come to learn shortly off. thereafter. <laughs> Might as well introduce him. His name, his name is uh, Hoa, isn't it? Yes. yes. Uh, who, as you said, is off, though not in the sense that we usually mean that term. He's off in the sense that He's perfectly fine that he's utterly naked, covered in dirt, walking through the apocalypse by himself, and is just set down next to the campfire of a strange woman who has, you know, pondering whether she needs to kill him. Yes. Well, she, Did, he also does. She also doesn't realize that he's dirty. She just thinks that he's like medium dark skin. And it's not until I think the next chapter that she's like, okay, you should take a bath now oh my goodness, you're just really dirty. Right. Did you you crawl out of a rock slide? What happened? So she does, I mean, she does notice it here. She doesn't 
Okay. She does initially think like, oh, is he, um, he's dark. Is he from kind of an Eastern coastal calm? And then it goes into this sort of like, um, but then he like starts to move and her kind of motherly, this is a child. This isn't a dark skinned child. This child is just dirty. Um, like that, that kicks in pretty immediately. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I just didn't remember if it was like a, he's super dirty and that's where all the color is coming from or he's dirty and like, he needs to get cleaned soon. No, it is. It is uh, very much like he's covered in dirt. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and then there's sort of this weird interaction where he sort of like, um, Hoa, like, hi, how are you? Sort of vaguely. And, <laughs> and then an immediate sort of like, I like you. Mm-hmm. Right. And, really but cute. never like a, I'm going to come with you. But like, then he just sort of does and she's vaguely okay with it. She seems to be a little bit in too much shock to really care or do anything about it. Um, right. Yeah. Doesn't put enough effort into chasing him off to actually get him to do it. And as we sort of later find out, that probably wouldn't have worked anyway. Now, one question I have for you guys is that we, we have the advantage that we get to see how Hoa originally emerges onto the scene, but it felt like to me it took, I even not knowing that, I would have been able to pick up that he was not human or that was something else about him a little bit faster than Asun did. How fast did you guys start to draw out the various hints that this might be our, our I, I guess in terms of the, when it occurs in the story, our first ex- exposure to a rock eater? Well, second. In terms of, well, no, true. On the hillside of the very initial prologue chapter, not that we have the slightest clue what's going on. <laughs> yeah, but they are described. They are. They are. Uh, and, and, and he does not match some of those descriptions. Right. Um, in large part because he makes a much more seemingly effort to remain, and well, not remain, but he makes a much more conscious effort to resemble and act as a human should, rather than uh, some other members of his. As much as he can. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question because if I if I try to go through the sort of thought experiment of like, okay, if I had not seen him sort of birthed from this geode um, and seen him collect his food source to take with him on the road, <laughs> um, I I don't know because I think he's clearly odd. Um, he's clearly very strange, but we are, I think I could put myself in a position of thinking like, well, we are estranged. Um, mm-hmm. And this kid is traumatized or just weird or I don't know. I mean, I think I don't know that I, I really know. would have gotten it until we get to the Kirkhusa, um Right, scene. which is the next mm. chapter. Yeah. Well, not the next chapter, but it is the next the Essen next chapter. Essen so chapter, yeah. But it's kind of like a this kid's weird. I'm not sure what's going on. And then it's just like um, then the next chapter is Spencer's favorite chapter where Demaya meets her mentor and he has um, the the interaction Lessons. of uh, a loving relationship begins. Yeah, a loving relationship begins with him breaking her hand. Of course, that's how they all begin, I think. Um, right. So so I feel like had I had any thoughts of putting things together that was completely ruined <laughs> by the next chapter and my brain going, what is going on in this world? On. Here's some real yeah. reader response theory coming into play. Right. <laughs> so, and that's followed. That chapter is followed by going to the first time we go to a node station and basically how the world treats these uh, origins that are hooked up a la minority report and then 
physically and or sexually abused on a semi-regular basis. And so I think any deep thought into what Hoa is, as long as you're going chapter after chapter, is just not there. Yeah, we have a lot of, like, readerly trauma in the interim. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's an interesting point that... um... Our chapter where two characters are essentially recreating the road as they wander through the apocalypse, through people constantly fleeing from death behind them, is really our calm interludes in between the rest of the other chapters of the story. I know, it seems just like camping. Yeah, Yeah, at least at this point. Right. I think, you know, that basically when certain chapters are calm, the others aren't, and it, it does a very good balance of insane things happen and vaguely normal things happen, and insane things happen, and vaguely normal things happen, mm-hmm. and different characters go through their insanity at different points. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems sort like of... it seems like a soon goes through her insanity almost before this story starts, and that it's all kind of calming down and restoring her to sanity thereafter. Because other than you know, uh, Hoa confronting a strangely carnivorous uh, German Shepherd-sized otter. Uh, and yeah. turning it into a crystalline, turning into a crystalline structure. Most of the rest of the tension of her arc is just whether she will ultimately be successful in what she's going, been traveling to do. Whether she will ultimately com- accomplish what she's set out to do. Yeah, that's uh, really the, the apocalypse behind her is just kind of background. It's not something that we see them actively endure so much, other than what other people she meets along the road and what they're going through. And I would kind of assume that because she's in origin and she's traveling alone, that the initial parts of the apocalypse just aren't dangerous for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's but- the comms falling and uh, two-legged wolves, as they say, mm-hmm. you know, basically human predators, um, which, again, I feel like we need to go back and discuss, um, but has uh, the leadership gone away from their hungry, hungry origins? Um, leadership is leadership is 100%. We don't, we don't necessarily know it at this point because we don't even know what Humanes is when we see it destroyed, but presumably the leadership of Humanes is 100%, 100% totally, absolutely, completely, and finally dead by page two. <laughs> uh, um, if some other leadership enclave still persists, I'd almost doubt it because based on the just band of mag uh, the literal splitting of the world the siberian traps that he just opens up along the equator all of the bases of the civilization the major cities the cultural hubs by which the orders and parts of the society is maintained by existed are now all dead the only people we meet we meet like three people over the course of this entire uh assumes part of the story that are from the equatorial region and they're from the very outer band of it and they're only alive because a node literally burned itself out, keeping them alive. So I wonder to what degree the uh, humanist culture that has been so essential uh, to the uh, survival of this world in the past, has it all survived intact, or at least in terms of its center and cultural element, by the start of this fifth season? Um, hmm. A, to- so, a topic for our week four, perhaps. Yeah, I, I guess I'm trying to remember, you know, when the breaking of the world, if that's destroying humanists or uh, the the prologue. No, I think the prologue was separate and it's... Anyway, but I, at the end that we find out the humanist is dead. But whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think we know. I Well, I don't know. I <laughs> <laughs> We know nothing. We know nothing. 
yeah it, it's sort of hard to know exactly what we know even at the end of this book when a lot of it is explained and i think part yeah. of that is we finished reading it a really long time ago yeah. part of that is it is a lot of things aren't perfectly clear mm-hmm. um and well. i think we'll get to the sort of resolution of a lot of things at the end of Esun's chapter yes in so many ways chapters. um not that it doesn't open up all volumes of new questions, but sure. we yes. do get at least a somewhat of a resolution. Yes, and, and to, to answer the other question that our listeners and, and readers that have only read the first book may have, the second book doesn't really deal with that. Um, it is essentially a, a separate character than we've met in the book mm-hmm. and her trials and tribulations. Yes. Huh. I, I've not looked at the second book yet, so it actually surprises me quite a bit. Yeah, um, I was surprised too, and disappointed is not the right word but you were invested at a certain point and wanted that to continue rather than get invested in somebody else exactly so um basically the, this ne- the second chapter is we're introduced to hoa and hoa joins um Esun on her uh wandering and they with, they with walk no off together with no questions asked answered or offered by hoa over the course of his initial interactions with him no there's yeah. a lot of and just it, sort of staring wide-eyed at Essun. Yeah, right <laughs> and Essun sort of is like well i'm still a mother and so i guess i'll take this child with me i feel like that's her sort of resolution with things it's a resolution but it's not a firm commitment yet it seems like in her initial chapters she's still pondering ways that she can get rid of him when she has the first opportunity like dropping him off at some com if he'll take him she's not personally invested other than fine he's here i'll keep him alive until i've got an alternative yeah it partially seems that like she just doesn't have the energy to figure out anything else to do with him yeah yeah she's she, she's still really holding it together by threads in yeah. this early going. She grows increasingly strong and much more aware of herself and makes a lot more broad decisions about what she wants to do and how she wants to do it. But right now, she's only recently emerged from autopilot. She's got a direction and she's heading in that because it's the only thing that's keeping her going. Everything else is secondary and will fall into place eventually, maybe. Yeah. Um, and then, so, um, basically that chapter ends with her, with them, I think, sort of sleeping next to each other and then deciding that like um after hoa bathes i believe and then they need to like find a calm or or, or you know they're she, uh Essen's going to continue on her way um then uh the next chapter comes around and they sort of meet with i i don't believe it's a calm per se but it's like a gathering of calmless and Roadhouse. Ah, Roadhouse. Yeah. And, and I, like, I remember the filling of the canteens. I have that written down, but I'm trying to remember, like, what led her to that place. It was just a roadhouse, and presumably that has water and other stuff. I mean, it's, it's a roadhouse in the sense that there is basically a well, a pump, and the well and the pump have a roof over it and maybe a room next to it. It isn't much. But as a result of this being literally the end of the world, a lot of people have clustered around this by the time she gets there. Making it very dangerous. Right. But not like they're there. They're like nearby. They're they're surrounding it to a degree that she's camping around. She's debating what to do about it. When, and this is really not explained when it happens, we just kind of have to pick up it afterwards, there starts to be screaming in the distance and people start running. And... I don't think she has the slightest clue necessarily what's happening at this given moment, other than the right thing to do now is run and worry about what the details are later. Well, but that's after she decides to go and fill her canteen. Okay. 
Um, so I think that there was like maybe a scattering of people, but they were far enough off that she went to fill her canteens, and that's where she first meets Tonky. Yeah, I interpreted that as basically there was a lot of people there, then they all ran away, and then she consciously decided to go back now that they were gone, taking the risk of whatever scared them off might come back. Okay, and so did Tonky, I guess? Tonky was already there. She was the only person that was there. Okay. Um, uh, and... and Tonky is a fascinating character. Uh, Sarah, she, you seem to be rather taken with her. What can you tell us about her? Well, Tonky is a, a d- odd creature in the world. Um, you know, she... <laughs> we we and Esun and Hoa, and, and Hoa even seems to kind of raise his eyebrows at her just as a kind of personality in the world. Um, we encounter her at this roadhouse, at the well, um, but she has this, like, almost like a... Um, Oh, like a um, an odds and ends cart full of stuff with her. I mean, just bags oh, yeah. on bags on bags of like, who knows Things. what is in in it? Yeah. But I think all sort of packed like to travel. Yes. No. It is. It's like, all meant to be traveling, but it is so much more than anyone else was just taking kind of a runny sack with them. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I guess I kind of imagine like somebody that's hiking the AT trail, but like wanders into a Trader Joe's, and everyone's like, "Yes, clearly you belong here." <laughs> but you kind of don't. It, the visual I had of her to start was not only her cart with massive things loaded in it, but I almost saw her person as just being loaded with so many odds and ends that you can't even really get a firm shape of a, a, a firm shape of her shape. Yeah, well, she seems to be kind of like dressed in rags and also quite dirty um, mm-hmm. and very scraggly. And I think you're right, kind of just loaded with all of this stuff that she is that she is traveling with. Um, but she also seems mm-hmm. to have a very like particular system by which she is doing all of these things. So she has all of these water vessels of some description that she is filling up. Um, And I I guess I also, if this were a typical fantasy novel that was a little bit more like Tolkien or something like that, she'd definitely be like a gnome with like all of her gadgets and, and, you know, the crazy goggles and and Mm -hmm. all sorts of just accoutrement like technical accoutrement Mm -hmm. um and this is sort of one of the first places that i started getting really confused with uh the state of technology um (laughs) because she has this like weird stick contraption that tells her about poison Yeah. yeah she has some kind of weird dousing rod um and one thing I love about the initial description of her, too, is that she immediately starts to defy all of Asun's expectations about her. Of where, when Asun first sees her, based on her description, she assumes, okay, she's calmless, she's practically going to be feral, i got to approach her very carefully, otherwise she's going to bolt, this is going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. She walks up very carefully to her, and Tonky basically just says, okay, you want some water? Just almost done, just going to fill these up, and you can go. Utterly peaceful conversation that defies all of her expectations, and that just continues with her interactions of work, of where nothing about this woman, in terms of what she is and what she's about and what her experiences are, matches your initial impression that you get from her physical appearance on the label that is put on her of a commas. Yeah, and there's also just like, uh, oh, do you need like another sack for the child? And like, how can I help you with all the stuff that I have with me? Mm-hmm. So can it's I just read, yeah. like, read the description of Tonky? Uh, no, please do. Okay, so, I mean, there's a little bit of preliminary stuff. And then um, we get to, she's calmless, which goes right to the point we were just talking about. Um, no one who suffered 
only recent homelessness would be so filthy, except the boy, a part of your mind's applies. But there's a difference between disaster filth and unwashed filth. This woman's hair is matted, not in clean, well-groomed locks like yours, but from sheer neglect. It hangs in moldy, uneven clumps from her head. Her skin isn't just covered with dirt. The dirt is ground in, a permanent fixture. There's iron ore in some of it, and it's rusted from the moisture in her skin, tinting the pattern of her pores red. Some of her clothes are fresh, given how much you saw abandoned around the roadhouse, easy to guess where she got those. And the pack at her feet is one of three, each one fat with supplies and dangling an already filled canteen. But her body odor is so high and ripe that you hope she's, get, that you hope she's taking all that water to use for a bath. So, I mean, this yeah. is like almost creature of the earth-like. Oh, yeah. She, she has grown to the position that she is, which, okay... I, I gotta go into this early because we're gonna. It will be revealed later, but it's important. I think we previously discussed that none of us, at any point, er, meeting this character now or meeting Binoff later, tied the two characters together. No. Yeah. I, I, I did not. Yeah. Um, also, I think a serious wrench that was thrown into this is the next chapter that continues with this group of unlikely characters because they they these three do set off together um we find out that tonki is at least sort of anatomically vaguely male yeah and unclear kind of to what extent um i mean like you know if this is a sort of like intersex kind of thing or like, what, what is going on here? Right. I, I, I think uh, there was a very surprised text from Spencer describing the scene, which was, and you look over and notice that apparently under all that matted hair and grime, there's a penis. That surprises you a little bit. <laughs> oh, well, she, she wouldn't have been taken in as a breeder anyway. It's a very casual response. I think we learn a little bit later that there's a, and this is, again, just shows how incredibly schizo the tech of this world is that uh tonki is seemingly on some equivalent of hormones of which there's a fungus that she regularly eats and she gets frustrated when she doesn't have it anymore and begins to grow a full beard again when she's not on it um so there is apparently some degree of natural plant that provides a degree of estrogen to the to the body um but it's left ambiguous as to whether she's intersex whether she is transgender but i found it just an interesting difference from what I was expecting and just that among the various this world has so much pain has so many difficulties that there's really not much time for prejudices other than towards origins mm -hmm. everything else is just background or acceptable or just something different or new to experience because the world itself is actively trying to kill you so there's just no time worrying about those kind of details yeah and I guess then the other thing that I never really wondered until we started talking about it is that there is a cast of breeders yeah but it seems like the and we learn at some point the leadership cast sort of they do their own breeding i guess um and um are we to believe that Esun has been passing her herself off as a breeder or is the whole breeder cast something separate because um, clearly something about male endowment has, or at least looks, are related to being a breeder caste, I would guess. Um, is that an only male thing? Are females just sort of there, you know, semi-caste independent? Um, we, is there, we, mm -hmm. Sorry, I was going to say, is there some sort of artificial insemination where breeders are 
harvested. Uh, I, I like I I have no idea given what what I remember reading. No, I mean breeders are of both genders. Um, mm-hmm. But okay, so I am I am in the glossary right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so breeders are one of the seven common use casts. Breeders are individuals selected for their health and desirable conformation. During a season, they are responsible for the maintenance of healthy bloodlines and the improvement of calm or race um, by selective measure. Breeders born into the caste who do not meet acceptable community standards may be permitted to bear the use caste of a close relative at calm naming. So this is, I mean, this is a class-based thing. Um, mm-hmm. Like breeders, but is it only during seasons? No, I I don't think so. But I think that breeders okay. breeders are used for to strengthen bloodlines of higher class, higher caste. Right to to maintain these what is it sons sons of yes. features. That, yeah, that yeah. and especially in kind of leadership in the leadership um, use caste. Okay, I think mm-hmm. like people have kids. Every like all of the castes have kids. Um, right, but the breeders but it, but it are also... selected and are their own cast and are kind of in their own sort of family line to create these st- quote unquote strong pure bloodlines. Okay. It's, a th- it's a thought that Asun has several times over the story as she meets people along the road that those that have particular features are particularly attractive or particularly healthy. She even thinks to herself that oh well they have a hope of a calm taking them in. A calm always needs breeders. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, that w- that I don't know. That was just super unclear to me as to like what role they played because I did not look at the glossary, and then it was just like, but everybody seems to be having kids, so yeah. No, it is it is very much, and I I, I don't think you're wrong to think that it is unclear. I mean, we get very we get no kind of direct interaction with breeders um, in this book. They're kind of hover the idea of them is hovering around the edges of it, um, but I think that it is it is specifically. A kind of like just a purity thing yeah going on uh, it is that um in terms of the initial interaction that we have with Tonki, we see something that's very interesting here for what we learned at the end of this story of where as they're working over this uh well filling their standing supplies filling their water supplies um we find what it is that sent the various refugees to flight as they look out front at when Tonki's leaving and find one of the only creatures, I think, over the course of the story that does not have a very clear Earth equivalent, at least not the one I'm, one I'm aware of, of where I'm utterly blanking right now in the name of whatever this uh, particular beast is. But it's an interesting idea of it's, where it's a creature that is cheaper than dogs, uh, only really needs to eat bushes during any time that's not a fifth season, perfectly peaceful, perfectly friendly, described as resembling a kind of massive oversized otter in terms of its appearance, that... During fifth seasons, though, being a creature which is very well acclimatized for what this world brings to bear, it goes straight carnivorous when a certain amount of ash has entered its diet. Uh, violently, viciously carnivorous in terms of when to turn on and eat its own masters, and it appears to be perfectly capable of doing so. And sort uh, of once it gets the taste for human flesh, is super excited about it. Mm-hmm. Wh- which makes a certain degree of sense for a creature to survive in the middle of a fifth season, or at least an immediate area around it as you're trying to leave that area. Because you're referring this season to the teeth. I am to a certain degree, <laughs> yes. But in case, of, in, in case of something that would naturally evolve, um, in an area that has been, the sunlight has been blocked out and the plant life has died as a result of this lack of the senses occurring, uh, meat would persist longer. 
uh, and being able to be selectively carnivorous in such moments when plant life preferred bushes have died out makes a certain degree of biological sense for a species to survive, at least migrating out of the area which has been most affected. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily work long term, but then nothing of, of society or the world would work if uh, the sunlight blocked for thousands like, of years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The for world a long dies period of time. Um, so how much do you think Levi would want one of these animals? <laughs> uh, it does seem like a creature that would suit him well. Uh, I'm just now left to, left to think whether he would intentionally feed it ash at certain moments to see what would happen. That, that, that is 100% something that would happen at some point, probably like far away from civilization and like maybe he'd put it down if he had to or just keep it on a short leash, like who knows. Um, yeah, so basically there are these three, three or four creatures um, that then converge on... Um, First Tonky, but then Hoa rapidly intervenes. Yeah, so 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 converges on the three of them, and Hoa just sort of goes out to greet them as Essun sort of gathers uh, energy to ice them, and sort of as she's, I think she tries to tell them like, get ne- near me so I can protect us, and Hoa's like, oh no, I'm gonna wander out there <laughs> and face down these crazy land otters. Um, and I think, like, hisses at them and, like, bares his teeth, mm-hmm. and she notices that he has, like, super sharp teeth, which brings to mind certain populations that, for whatever reason, have very pointy or maybe filed teeth for certain reasons, and that wasn't made clear, but I think that sort of ties into um, the season of the teeth, which I, I think we at some point mentioned basically is... at uh, with the uh, story of Shimshena, when uh, the ruling classes sort of decided that they liked eating people and Long Pig was super tasty. Um, and I think it sort of brought up visions of that era. Um, and so when Hoa faces this creature down, this creature then like charges Hoa. Um, he goes to bite him. Hoa puts his arm down the creature's mouth, then it looks frozen. Esun kind of freaks out and then like runs over to take care of him and then realizes that this creature is now stone. And it's kind of like, what the fuck is going on? I love the description too, where she can't realize it at first until she watches the crystalline effect slowly go up the hair follicles mm-hmm. uh, of where it is going from inside the creature out. Um, and if she wasn't certain enough as is that this is not just part of this very oddly diverse, that he's not of a, of a distant culture of this incredibly oddly diverse world that she lives in, um, she sees that, not well, she ponders how she's even going to get his arm out as she's working through this, and he just kind of sighs and just breaks its jaw, just as a casual gesture of moving his arm down. Uh, he's bleeding slightly, but otherwise unharmed and has absolutely no desire to discuss whatsoever what happened. And is this the moment of where he says in a heartbreaking fashion that I don't want to answer any of your questions because I want you to like me? Yeah. Yeah, and actually the first thing he says, right. which I think is, is really interesting, was just a, I hadn't meant for you to see this yet. Yeah, that's a good yeah. line too. Um, um, uh, so question here, since I guess we've discussed most of the rest of the well, no, I'll, I'll I'll leave it for later. But my leave it the answers for later. But my question is, could he eat the the crazy otter thing? 
Um, and I, I think we'll we'll come back to that. I also found it interesting that I don't remember Tonki getting freaked out at all by this. I think Tonki was kind of like, okay, this tracks, whatever. <laughs> I, Tonki is not a person that seems very flappable. I mean, it she, she finds something new and interesting to follow and is then there right there following it because it is new and interesting and she wants to learn more. This was probably just a very fascinating day for her. Yeah. Um, but just kind of goes along with it. Mm-hmm. And I seem to remember that like after Hoa does this, the other animals either go away scared or as soon ices them. Um, but they essentially weren't an issue for our merry band of very weird travelers. As they then exit stage left, again, no questions answered by Hoa, because he seems really distressed that he's had to do what he did in front of her, because, again, didn't want to reveal this yet and wanted her to like him. And they go to a, they go back to Tonki's home, which I think I texted you guys, is a place I really want somebody to draw because it just <laughs> sounds gorgeous. Wait, Tonki's home? Yeah. That that kind of uh, lava dome uh, isolated structure in the middle of a preserved lava forest. Okay. They're not there long. They basically just... Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, they I was like, put... Tonki's mm-hmm. home, but that was the capital anyway no, yeah, yeah yeah i know i know okay. tonki's present yep. home and we're going to discuss this either now or later to explain how this works for we, how we connect tonki and bin off together later and the whole following is soon but we'll get to that but they basically put together supplies and continue on their journey and it's over the course of these next parts that it becomes very much apparent that as much as as soon was the one who originally set off in a direction that she expected jija and her daughter to be going in it is now very much Hoa that is leading them. And as she learns, it's because Hoa seemingly has an instinctual, active, constant sense of where origins, and at least at present, particularly her daughter, are. Yeah. Which uh, very much justifies his presence to her, if, if, if uh, that had not even confirmed already. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now I'm forgetting. It was an amethyst obelisk that he stepped out of, right? Uh, kind of like a geode kind of thing. A geode? Okay. Yeah. I saw it as being almost like a. I my initial vision of it was almost like a kind of a, a geode coffin that had emerged well, in the shape or form of a geode that was a had st- um, stumbled out of well had come out of the collapsed wall and then emerged like a geode with this kind of red uh, quartz-like rocks inside that he's taken with him for seemingly food. Gotcha. Okay. Um, anyway, so then they go trading at like a small place that they find and and uh Esun's trying to figure out like what she can trade and so she trades some of the glass knives that Jija has napped I believe and um then uh Tonki ponies up uh a compass of reserves yeah which again like there's apparently absolutely no metal as far as I can tell except for maybe there's some other way that the compasses work and that's what um, is here. It's probably some like weird uh, conglomeration of sticks and water or something like that. Um, <laughs> it's it's also one of our first hints that um, at the time we write it off as Tonki just being particularly generous because we've already seen that before. But this right. is a kingly donation that she just offered to the cause. A compass is an incredibly valuable, very difficult to replace um, bit of technology in this world, and she just casually offers it up for the sake of getting a pair of boots for Poa. So right. our first indication that she's either A, very dedicated to the book, de- dedicated to the group, 
or B, as we learn later, may have a very skewed sense of the wealth of things and how, and, and uh, <laughs> back, background on what uh, um, the value of maintaining things and not being able to replace them is. Yeah. Um, and so then the, the intervening chapter between this trading and the next chapter is um, the GMS converging on the obelisks and the guardians coming out and assaulting cyanite and alabaster um alabaster telling cyanite we are gods in chains and cyanite using an obelisk to kill basically all of the guardians and they pass out Mm -hmm. a lot of shit happens um yeah kind of like a oh my god this is like crazy things are happening and then um this is then Esun, Tonki, and Hoa continue on the road and um, Hoa basically says, I'm not really sure where your daughter's going anymore, but I think it's sort of this direction. There are a lot of you here. And Esun's kind of like, huh? And they basically... What? Yeah, sorry, don't interrupt. After you. Um, They basically sort of come up on a formation that's kind of like a doorway and are greeted by an Araga, or an Origin, a Stone Eater, and a bunch of guards. It's like the beginning to a bad joke. (laughs) (laughs) A couple questions before we get there. Um, PJ, you had an excellent description of what a geomist was, or at least your interpretation of what it is, because that is what Tonki reveals herself to be. Um, How did you you describe it? But she's not, but yeah. Uh, Well, she says she is. She is well, at least studied at the uni. Yeah. Right. I assume that a lot of things are essentially portmanteaus or something mm-hmm. like that of like a geologist and a chemist. And mm-hmm. so that's how you get geomest. Um, and they call them mests. And uh, that just, I sort of just ran with that because I, especially now that I know that com is community, it's just <laughs> sort of like, uh, one of those things that writers sort of end up doing a lot where they take English words and doing things to them and getting words that we don't know. And so I guess that's sort of where geomest uh, fit in my mind. And then I tried to figure out like what Raga or origin. And I think I came up with original genes um, or something like that. And I had this theory that origins uh have some genetic code that allows them to deal with the obelisks which are really satellites um and it's high tech uh but that was just i was trying to fit it with something and that's a story in some or that that's essentially the plot of some anime that i had watched a while ago and i was like well maybe it's this because like there doesn't seem to be any explanation for anything else, and there seem to be indications that this is Earth. In, in terms of trying to explain how orogeny or the technology of this world works, good luck. <laughs> Pretty much all we yeah. know is that there are there is an organ called a sisapene or something like that, which we have no, no idea if that's a real thing or not, or connected to any human thing that we presently have or not. Other than that, really just kind of draw or make up what you want, because the technology is an odd mishmash of various things that have been remembered from civilizations collapsed before and orogeny is something natural something magic something tied to technology of the forgotten past something that is actually just created as a result of some technological achievement related to something called the socket which itself made the opolis <laughs> we can go down a rabbit hole in a dozen different directions and get lost in the process 
pra more practical questions I just wanted to check with you on as well. Um, one thing I find very interesting in terms of the description that Hoa offers, and Floor's the main character, is that the reason that Hoa can't tell where her daughter is anymore is that he essentially kind of sees them as little focal points of light. And as long as they're individual, you can tie in the little identifying traits of that particular of light. But there are so many little bits of light that are sending on the same location, it's just kind of getting blurred in the background. Which, as you said, is draws one hell of a what from Essun, because there's no reason for why that should be happening. There is no yeah. contingency plan for all the origins in the world to cluster in the same location, nor would the Fulcrum ever allow that under something other than their banner. Yeah, and that was kind right. of her like immediate, um, immediate thought was like, but that's really dangerous. Like we, they oh, yeah. should not be doing that. This yeah. is a good way for the rest of the world to descend on you and kill you yeah. if they ever find this is a thing. So this is rapidly defying any sense of logic that she's built up prior in the world. The only way she's seen Origins function in the past is either in hiding, in the fulcrum, or on isolated islands and places where everybody assumed they should be dead. That's right. it. And that's not even like a group of Origins. That was like... Two. There were, yeah, there mm -hmm. were like two or three, and then they were breeding more. Yeah, trying to anyway. Um, so this it's a very unexpected and weird thing. And her sense of weirdness is only aided, as you said, when she arrives in this town... And she finds an abandoned town. This is the description I remember of it basically being of a ghost town. There's no one above the surface. Until she arrives at this doorway to a random, seemingly decayed building and finds, as you said, the start up to a joke, a, a very headstrong origin standing next to what appears to be another stone eater and seemingly a still with a crossbow. Mm -hmm. um, and many questions and much tension follow. Oddly enough, the greatest bit of tension being between Hoa and the other Stone Eater, I think. Yeah, that was really yeah. unexpected as a reader. Even though you had kind of figured out that Hoa was a Stone Eater or something similar at that point. Like, the animosity between these two is really, like, palpable in this scene. And everybody else in the scene is also like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> like, what is happening right. here? I think it was a couple of chapters ago where he essentially pulled out, like a handkerchief-wrapped bundle of little rock things and was eating them. Yeah, I don't remember and when that happened, but yeah. Yeah. That was kind of his, like, real admittance to... Real reveal yeah. of what he ate. Yeah. And Essun was kind of like, oh, okay. Well, that's... So you got enough of those, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, but it's interesting, too, because this... I mean, this first interaction with between the two Stoneers surprised the hell out of me just because it hadn't... Been, we hadn't really given anything to build up to that. Not that we'd seen Stoneers interact before. And it really persists. We never see a moment of where Hoa is comfortable around another stone eater over the course of the story, nor they around him. And we're really left to ponder, well, I want to discuss this heavily in our fourth episode, is this something that is unique in terms of that our interactions with Hoa? Is he in some ways an outcast or some, you know, origin equivalent in their society? Or is this something that's more integral and fundamental to how the stone eaters interact with each other and the tensions that's between their race? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know either. But I have yet another question, and I think this, well, we'll get to a little bit more in this uh, second to final chapter of Essun. Um, how many Stone Eaters are there, and is the Stone Eater that came up a Stone Eater that we've seen before or not? Well, um, could we even know? I mean, that they seem to, that they don't have to assume any form. They can assume any kind right. of any form that they want though the ones we've seen tend to seem to prefer to stick with the same form over time, though that it's maybe for human convenience use. 
Right, and I guess I don't remember the description well enough of this stone eater to attribute this stone eater to maybe being somebody that, or some stone eater that we're familiar with. Um, I think our host origin kind of says at one point that there are more stone eaters here. Yeah. Right. Uh, I don't. I don't think we've been given any reason to believe it's necessarily a one-to-one pairing, though it is interesting to see that over the three major origins we see over the course of this story, each one of them appears to have a stone eater that is following them around now. Right. Um, anyway, so there's basically this little standoff that then kind of is broken by the origin that's there that's kind of like, y'all need to chill the fuck out. <laughs> what, um, what, what is her name? Ika? Uh, is that what it is? I well, I don't know. BJ, you're the one who listened to it. In my head, it's Ika. Yeah, I, I, okay. that is that. That is the new and accepted term. Nothing else will be allowed or accepted. It is now stone lore. <laughs> oh, um, great. Yeah, what we want is some stone lore here. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it keeps people alive and depressing an entire class of people that otherwise would also keep them alive. But that's just semantics. Is it? <laughs> yeah. So they then sort of break that tension and are invited in sort of it's invited invited in the invitation (laughs) yeah it's it's the welcome it's the hotel california style of letting you in you you you, you're free to check in but you can never leave maybe um ika pretty much straight up tells them or strongly strongly suggests with a smile kind of way of that you need to come in now and now that you're here you can't exit. We just never yeah. get to see the resolution of that before the story ends. Yes, and I guess mm-hmm. sort of my presumption is like until you are part of our group, we won't let you out to like rain ungodly hell on us from the crazies out there. To tell the world of our presence. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's- so I think that there's some trust basically because it's like, oh, well, you're an Argene, so like you're not going to hopefully do anything particularly stupid. I mean, are we to believe, again, this is just a pondering because we hella don't know, uh, <laughs> are the various Stone Eaters leading origins to this point? Because that's the only reason Asun got here. I would say yes. I think it is mentioned that Asun did not have some kind of natural draw to this location. She's told by Ika that there is a natural draw, but she doesn't seem to feel it. It's very much Hoa that actually brings her here. Right. Well, presumably, I think it's essentially stated that, like, she would have come anyway at some point eventually. Um, and that's, my a bro- guess that's a broad is, description. <laughs> yeah, but, like, that's about all we're going to get. And I think that the other side of that is that Hoa uh, maybe saw what happened and kind of wanted her to get there sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. And maybe she would have gotten there sooner rather than later had there not been an intense trauma essentially before from the breaking of the world and this um origin specific gravity well Mm -hmm. um in uh in terms of the visual that you guys get from this world uh i almost wanted i almost view it as like a geode equivalent of willy wonka in terms of description that they paint of this thing inside (laughs) but it, it it is a hell of a visual of this kind of purposefully preserved isolated well purposefully um what's the word i'm going with persistent community that exists un, uh, under the ground in a way that from her perspective on what below ground how, how well below ground formations do during the middle of the uh, tectonic activity does not make any sense whatsoever but seemingly has endured huh. throughout countless fifth seasons other than the fact that the people in it don't seem to endure quite as well yeah i guess i did not assume that this was an enduring community 
Well, enduring, not, not the community, the enduring world of itself. Ah. It persists. Okay. The people in the it notably yeah. don't. Yeah. And notably, the people people there before are corpses. Um, and I guess this is also where we are further introduced that it's likely that Origins could do many more things than they do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it's very much stated that basically all of the non-crappy like additions of essentially scaffolding over incredible architecture that architecture is essentially molded out of stone done by or even the tech that powers the um like the air filterators air, air filtration that allows this community to function underground is seemingly kind of naturally powered by latent or uh, orogeny in the back uh, from the people that are in it and nobody yeah. has any idea how it actually works uh-uh to the, to the point that the initial explorers couldn't get it to work because they weren't origins. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until Ika originally sh- showed up with her mom that suddenly everything starts to come on and a community is able to grow and persist. Yeah, I guess I there are fairly distinct images that I have in my head and I think some of it comes from other books and <laughs> games and things that I've played um, where it's sort of a very distinct geo look but very... Uh, structured images mm. and also very glowy um, very yes. glowy and jagged too i mean she talks about the ground just being a, ma- a, ma- a mismatch of knives with just boards paint uh, pl- uh planked over mm-hmm. them yeah um at some point spencer we'll have to revisit you playing mass effect andromeda um <laughs> but they're, they're a topic sort of, for another day <laughs> yeah a topic for another day or maybe after we finish the episode but there are sort of these structures that you end up in um where and this drove me insane but like if you step in the wrong place it kills you fairly quickly (laughs) that's Um, just bad game design there that that is a a very good uh addition to the description of mass effect andromeda um (laughs) but that's sort of how i imagined this uh underground geode like thing also kind of how uh the Iron Throne is described in the books, at least, mm. where mm-hmm. it's just like, you can sit there, you might die. And you're certainly going to be are... uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, you're certainly going to be uncomfortable and you're probably going to get cut real quick. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. like, you can do it. Yeah, it, it, it is functional in a sense of the word. Um, right. And that's kind of an accurate description of this thing, of where it is functional in a sense of the word, not necessarily for humans. Um, right. humans kind of needed various additions put on top of it for it to work but it's a place that is persistent that is resistant to the world around it and it is where various origins seemingly are clustering together for the purposes of building a new community despite what has happened to the world and this is really the first moment of where it is very played out how bad what happened is of where we have our various origins eco leading the way talk about in a way that's kind of revealing to uh, Tonki, who does not know this but may suspect, well, the and the reader, and the reader too. We are we are we are stills <laughs> in this story, listening in as well. Uh, the true scale of this fifth season in a way that the world has never seen before. Of where Tonki kind of just thought that you know, eh, you know, it'll be decades, it'll suck, but you know, we've endured worse, we can make it through this. And Asun originally says, no, it'll be hundreds of years. And then Ika looks at her and she kind of says, or thousand never. As yep. th- this is an event that there's no real human concept of time that'll really go into how long things could return to normal. A normal doesn't exist anymore in any practical human sense. 
a new world is upon us and it is not ho- it is inherently hostile to mankind yeah um anyway so um basically after the initial wandering in the geode city um the next chapter is uh the uh island the love triangle cyanide <laughs> having her child and her go out on a pirate expedition <laughs> the, um, the real brief praises of these chapters that you're giving in the interim <laughs> are super bizarre and really great bj so you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) well that's kind of my notes to like bring up like the rest of like what actually happens um we we get this quote um father earth started hating life when they destroyed the water and drilled into head finally they destroyed his only child um and then then we get the uh returning to alia and and the Calmly of the volcanoes and of that mess, but that this quote was when I was just like, "Oh, holy shit!" Okay, so <laughs> this is when I decided that we were in the future. Okay, that people were drilling yeah. for oil, fucked something up, and destroyed the moon. How those events are in any way connected <laughs> is a different question, right? Because one does so, not inherently lead to the other. But so I guess I assumed that then there were like complete title shifts because, you know, with a quick destruction of the moon, sort of everything geological would just get weird. Yeah. Um, And in in, in any way that the moon would be destroyed, uh, the amount of impacts you'd have on the earth that could easily split the crust and lead to all kinds of other fun events would be high. Uh, you, You can't crack the moon without a large portion of it falling down to the earth. So between that, between the tides being messed up, between the very magnetic field of the Earth being altered permanently, the loss of the moon would cause a lot of these things to occur from what we understand about science. Uh, So like like you, BJ, when that happened, I think I even sent you guys a text going, okay, let's chart this out because this seems to finally make a certain degree of sense. (laughs) Does not explain demonic otters, but that's among a collection of things that is not fully explained about how this could be future Earth. So then I have lots of notes and lots of questions um, and I just started writing stuff in my notes rather than like brief summaries of uh, chapters. <laughs> um, but I believe this is the chapter where Essen realizes that Tonki has been off. Yeah. yeah. Which, and mm-hmm. Tonki has been following her for her entire life. Yeah, their meeting at the at the roadhouse was not like a chance meeting. Right. So Tonki set that up. She basically says, I've been paying like all of the people to keep tabs on you. Um, and I almost lost you when you were hanging out in the island and then like made some new volcanoes. Um, <laughs> because casual. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and basically the Beanoff slash Tonki has been studying sockets her entire life and was kind of thrown out by her family Mm -hmm. her her family the university really kind of everybody um and so here i have the why was she disowned and maybe we can talk about this in the next pod but um basically i was just like well is it because she definitely seems like she's on the spectrum or her seemingly uh male to female transition or or something along those lines um anyway so i think the um, I haven't. 
What? Yeah, just in terms of plot points, and it's odd in a novel where we've got characters that can crack can crack the surface of the world or end Yellowstone-era hotspots with an act of will, but I found the idea of Tonki following her and finding her again in the middle of this apocalypse to be what required the most willful suspension disbelief from me. Of where... Really? It, it, yeah. This one actually... I, I found this one kind of hard to believe and accept. Just that, sure, she's invested the resources into following or whatever else, but the fact that she's individually able to show up in that moment and may have spent years living in that location, seemingly hundreds of miles away from where she was just to find her in that moment, I, I didn't know whether that necessarily worked for me as well. Kind of required so the conscious I, will I to think get through it. There are a couple of things that didn't bother me as much. Um, one, she's basically the equivalent of the president's daughter in terms of resources and wealth <laughs> yes yeah um maybe not this one but that's a thing for another time um so maybe not president but like the ruling family not mm-hmm. quite the emperor because i think we do have uh an emperor that's separate but like more, more like a communist ruling party family or something along those lines so basically the most powerful family in this world I'm, I'm with you again about the resources necessary to follow her across time and have spies okay. and whatever else doing it it's her personal involvement in here at the last stage that i is either not well enough explained to me about the timing of it or just seems a bit forced to me that she was able to pers- personally in put herself in this location in a way to find her in this moment i think she yeah. even just kind of shrugs it off as eh it was luck I think well she said that she was going to personally come find her and it was luck that it was at the roadhouse. Mm-hmm. My other presumption is and this is just cuz technology is complete bullshit in this book um <laughs> but like I'm willing to accept it is that she has a device that is just like this is around where she is. If that's the case, then the technology is even more bullshit. Because I don't think we've been given GPS trackers quite yet. But who yeah, knows? but but basically, it's not a, immediate poison detection like that—that's like a completely um, and knowledge of insane poisons. And there are just so many things that like Tonki slash Binoff has knowledge of that my my presumption is. Either those are true, which, you know, is fine because, you know, either we're, we're in an Earth-type world and either technology is way, 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 way farther than we are or we have some real magic. One of the ways I accept it is that one of the descriptions you offered last time, Sarah, is that it's not really that this... The best way to explain this technology is that it's not being discovered. It's being relearned or refound or some limited degree of persistence from prior civilizations. Um which I think works to a certain degree, that we have reasons to believe that so many prior cycles of civilizations have fallen, collapsed, and are left as little more than relics, that some degree of something beyond stone lore would persist through those, even though it doesn't necessarily fit in where the technology presently is. Mm-hmm. Just part of the artifacts of the world. It's like how in our own world that we somehow lost how to make concrete for 1,700 years because the <laughs> Roman civilization collapsed and we didn't write it down. But various other fi- fixtures of the world kept going with us. Yeah, I present to you all the Middle Ages. Like, Yes. Yeah. It, it is a thing. Um, we're, so we're the not... other thing that I kind of want to mention is, does Tonki know about this underground geode craziness? Um, um, I didn't think she did. I didn't think I she did she either. Was, 
And I don't think she did, but I'm not 100% sure. But the other thing that I want to say is if she had all these resources and it was essentially like in a nearby area and could have somebody report like which major road Essun Cyanite took, then meeting her on the high, the one high road that she's been traveling on the essentially entire time is like, all right, that's, that's fine. Well, so just for a second to the logistics of how kind of Tonky Beanhoff is here, um, she says specifically that like for a long time she had people following Essun, um, but oh, actually right. for the last several years she has been following her person. Um, so like, I mean, she was there when. Essun was living in the calm. Right. And Essun is traveling incredibly or fairly slowly. Right. Because we also find out in the chapter that we're sort of in the middle of discussing that Lorna is in the geode place. Right. And, and has been be- for her there. a while. Yeah. Yes. The, though it's, it's interesting that Tonki has a home that is seemingly quite a distance away from the, um, the calm that um, Essun is at. She yeah. didn't seem like she just suddenly settled in a couple days before in this um, lava structure. It was actually, you know, a well-settled home that she's basing in. She could have still just been observing her from a great, great distance through technology or other people. Or just, like, wandering in every so often and seeing, like, well, yep, she's still there. She still has a family. She ain't going anywhere. Let me go and back then, to my home base. Right. Sure. And then there's this, then all hell breaks loose. I better go find her. Mm-hmm. Oh, like everyone's going well everyone's going and presumably Tonki was essentially traveling north to the calm that Essun is in and Essun's traveling south to kill her husband and they've <laughs> happenstance at, crossed well they they meet at like one of the few wells that's in between the two places mm-hmm. which is a natural gathering point mm-hmm. right so I mean I feel like we can have all these explanations of like other things but also if they're only traveling on high roads, essentially, then, like, this doesn't seem, like, that crazy that they would have met on the high road, and it happens to be that they did it well. Yeah, I, ex- I did not find this, like, unbelievable. But then I also, like, I don't know that I buy that we're in a future Earth, so, like, my suspension of disbelief is so far outside <laughs> comes, of what you all are talking about that I'm like, I don't know. It comes in different ways. <laughs> yeah. ride the wave. It's cool. Yeah. Um, well, in terms... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I, I was just saying, we really, I was kind of thinking about it. We really only have pretty much one major plot point left to do in Asun's chapter, don't we? Uh, so there's a, well, there's one thing that I sort of wanted to mention in the underneath uh, before we have the meeting that she needs to attend, which mm-hmm. is there are uh, what are described as sort of weird pointy lines on a lot of the stairways and that seem to be like room markings and directions. Mm-hmm. And my brain was like, oh, maybe that's Chinese. Kind of like the description of Sanzed as dark and wiry. So maybe uh, this is sort of, anyway. We're talking about a world that is so far removed in the future that the world has kind of pushed itself together into a kind of Pangaea again. So. If or is, people don't travel on the ocean because it's completely unsafe because that's what everybody was just like, holy crap, like an island. So I think it doesn't, doesn't even say at one point that the continents welded themselves back together in some way. It could very well have. I, I don't remember. Yeah, and also, I'm 
curious that you pronounce it Pangaea. I was not going to mention that, but go on ahead. I, I, it's okay. I, that, I mo- regularly moment I said it, I went, "Oh crap!" BJ's going to seize on that one. <laughs> like, you know, you know when you say a word a word wrong and you turn to that one friend and says, "Oh, we're going to make an issue out of this right now." I know I did it. Um, yeah. So, so the funnier thing is, I go through this with uh, Brie fairly often because there are many, many, many words that she has only read mm-hmm. and never said out loud or heard somebody else say. Mm-hmm. And so she'll say something and I'll just give her a look and be like, <laughs> what? Um, anyway, so back to the book. Um, mm-hmm. um has a meeting set up that she is told to attend. And there's given very little information about what that is, um, other than where it's going to take place. She kind of takes a roundabout route to get there, meeting with the doctor first, I think. Does she meet with the doctor first, or is that something that even precedes this? Um, doesn't matter. Um, go, go, I don't know. Goes I, think, to, I think she meets Lerna first. Goes to the location, and is immediately greeted at the door by... And I was about to say her name, and then it passed right out of my mind. Uh, Alabaster's uh, stone that he's often with. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Who is in the doorway, and we get another really tense standoff kind of scene between her and Hoa. Yes, um, and so that's that was my question: Is it antimony that we first meet, or is Hoa just like not cool with any other stone eater? Yeah, and that's I'm not I'm not sure. You asked that question, BJ, and yeah. I was like, oh yeah, of course that was antimony. And then I was like, well, right, I don't. But why? I don't think I had any Ika? idea that that would have been like why. Why would that be the case? So I don't, I don't know. It could right. have. We do know that there are other stone eaters, and there isn't there. enough information right. that, like, yeah. right. It is someone anyway. who vaguely resembles antimony. Right. Um, Y'all just racist. <laughs> the, the, the stone eaters all stone don't eaters look, eaters look like. I don't think they do. So she has a conversation with Alabaster, uh, who, who is not okay. looking well. That's just a very casual reveal you do about that right there. <laughs> I was a bit shocked to find Alabaster in that room at that given time. Yeah. There are so many shocking things that <laughs> yeah. go on. This is essentially the end of the book. This is like all the reveals at once. Mm-hmm. Um, Spencer, I I think we had discussed that you had seen this. I don't I don't know if you have, uh, Sarah, but um, there's a series called Dollhouse. I haven't. Yeah. It's on my list, though. Um, it's, okay. it's, it's interesting. It's sort of fine. It's... Um, by Joss Whedon. It's not his um, best. What? It's not his best. It's not his best, but I think it, it it's not his worst. I, so the first oh, season is very much like a sort of enemy of the week, and there's sort of like an undertone of like you're finding out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, midway through the second season, I think he finds out that the series is going to be canceled after this season. <laughs> mm and then this like second half and maybe like this like the last quarter of the second season is well here was where the plot was going to go <laughs> and i have about 3 hours to tell you and Dumb. i'm going to do it because we're not going to have another firefly bullshit um, oh don't even and, don't even <laughs> right and so that's kind of what this last chapter slash one conversation felt like was essentially the entire book or a lot of it being condensed to like uh as terry would say like 15 kindles <laughs> I, I, I don't even know if it's that many no it's very it, short it, and a lot of like very one might say sketchy details on anything but we have this last kind of conversation between or 
last conversation in the book between Alabaster and Essun. Yeah. It, well, it, we don't know that it's the last conversation. No, like, just last conversation a, in in this book, let's right. say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Alabaster is basically like a I can't forgive you for what happened on the island. Mm-hmm. Um, Which case, fuck you. You left, dude. You didn't have a choice, but come on. Oh, okay, so, I get so where he's Spencer, coming from. like the words that you say, like he <laughs> left, like yes, it's technically correct, sort of, <laughs> but I feel like kidnapped is a little bit more on point. There was a lack <laughs> feel of like, will does it attached. Really yes. do justice to what happened. In he that didn't moment. buy yeah. the plane ticket. He was kind of you know put so, in the, put in the passenger care. Co- you know, count. like mentor. Uh, groomer abuser like leaving i like to keep to a theme forceful abduction like it they're essentially the same yes uh but it it is and he clearly is still holding a grudge about this he's also to be holding a grudge that unlike him she's lived a life yes she she's gotten married she's had children she's had a job she's continued on which either by conscious will or being denied it because of who he was with Alabaster seems to have not at all had Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alabaster basically says, I'm done with this. We need to break the world and destroy it and remake it in a more reasonable way. Um, this is also where we got the super creepy and crazy reveal that the food that stone eaters eat are the origins turning to stone, which they break off in pieces yeah Yeah. add that one to the list um so that one was a like really shocking reveal and like what's hoa been eating with a very intimidating fang staring grin from antimony et as soon while that reveal was happening too yeah Mm -hmm. she like eats like his pinky or something she's just like gnawing on him which is like real odd yeah Let's um, point that out. That also, Alabaster has started to live up to his name to a certain degree mm-hmm. as he's gone very stony. Yes. Um, again, like next episode conversation of what the fuck is that a thing? Why is that a thing? <laughs> yeah. Um, th- there are really then, no answers to that question. <laughs> like I don't know. Yeah, but we can at least sort of like you know toss out our our random uh, with, within know, the world within the with. world. Yeah, um, I mean, I'll toss out just to start that it seems in some ways a connection to the magic of the guardians because that's the only time we've seen them turned to stone in that kind of fashion. It may suggest some kind of common origin or technological connection between them. Yeah, um, I was thinking that or certain dealings with the um, obelisk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, everything co- everything goes back to the obelisk, it seems. Yeah. Which, throughout, throughout that detail, because we kind of burst over it, the Tunky also reveals that the obelisks were produced in the socket, and that's the basis of everything that has happened and how the world went wrong, which is, right. again, offered without any degree of explanation or follow-up. It's just kind of an off two-sentence line before, okay, now you need to go meet Alabaster. We'll get back to that eventually. Yeah, and... I think the book basically ends on Alabaster, like, intensely, like, staring at Essun and going, have you ever heard of a moon? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, but before that question, there are, like, a couple of other, or at least one other instance of him, like, really maddeningly doing a sort of, like, headed out yet. And you're like, what are you doing? You're being eaten by a thing. Could you not? Yeah. Yeah. How are you coy right now? You're being eaten alive while turning into stone. You've lost your rights to be coy. 
it, it also I mean, it, it, this is a reveal that we kind of already had put in two and two together about but we are now confirmed particularly for Asun and also us that it was Alabaster that ended the war we kind of were already well on, it, so we have confirmed that it is Alabaster that destroyed the fulcrum and, and, and the city that it was in and presumably starting something I mean it was antimony on the hill presumably it was Alabaster there as well Wait, so I... In the prologue. Okay. I mean, that was my assumption. I don't remember that there's, like, a confirmed connection with that because I thought that it could either be that or um, Muslim and Shimshana playing out. Oh, you thought it was in the past. Yes. I... Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. That is interesting. I I did not see it that way. I saw it... So, again, on my second reading, I'm still not sure. Like, it seems very possible... And that's, I think, the most likely thing. But again, it's not clear. And we kind of know that the the fulcrum and the capital city have been there for a while and very possibly there since that time. Well, now we need to kind of talk about the prologues. We have kind of, we've kind of kept on breezing over it. But I interpreted very much that it was a human and a stone eater that were on that hill together. Because it even refers to your people will retake the world. She's described in very stone fashion. She matches the description, I thought, of antimony that we hear later. Um, and then we hear now Alabaster admitting here at the end of the story that he was the one who did it. He is the one that cracked the crust that brought the new fifth season about. Um, yes. But we, so, as, you, as you say, we don't necessarily have a firm connection that those events are tied. Yes. I mean, so we definitely have a connection that the cataclysmic event that brought about... Uh, the death of Uche is, and that'll be a really interesting thing, and I'm almost positive it's not addressed in the second book, but Alabaster essentially killed Uche. Uh, indirectly. Yes. He, he definitely did kill all of his children. What? Uh, he talks oh, about how he, yes. we, he using, well, using the obelisks, using, uh, to, to be able to, able to connect the magic of others, he then brought together the magic of all of his children as the node maintainers to bring about the power necessary to do as he did. And we hear directly said several times that several, many of the node maintainers died or were blown apart as part of either trying to stifle this separately or just part of the natural effect of the world blowing apart. Yeah, I thought, yeah, I thought it was um, like really pretty much intentional that all of the no- node maintainers were going to die yeah. um, to, end, right. to end their suffering. Sure. Well, um, that is, that is where the story really is. It's <laughs> this a very, is the real lackluster ending that we have to this whole thing. It, it's an abrupt and very odd question that just continues the infuriating nature of Alabaster's interactions with First Cyanide now as soon. Yeah. Uh, well, you said lackluster. I would not say lackluster. No, I mean, I don't think the ending to the book is lackluster at all. Okay. Um, we have just been quite abrupt here. But yes. Yes. yes I think that's fine. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I guess, like, I. It's, it's sort of hard to tie this out, and then I feel like the the Essun chapters have less in them in many ways. Um, it's much more a traveling experience that you get to understand more of the world. Mm-hmm. And then um, she's sort of wandering along and then hits a wall and gets told there's we need to make a moon, mm-hmm. kind of. Um, Her chapters aren't really meant to do much in the way of world building. They're not really meant to expand our knowledge base. They're meant to kind of tie things more intimately back to us again, given the fact that it's always through you. As I said, they're almost like a bit of a a calm in between the storms. 
um, while <laughs> unknowingly or not linking together various events in the other stories to eventually tell us that all of them are connected. Uh, yeah. But this, as you said, this data dump of a last section leaves us with so many additional topics to ponder as we go through various philosophical themes and questions and unanswered subjects that this story loves to throw at us. Yeah, um, and so we do have another couple of reveals that give more information and sort of ties everything together, hmm. um, which is the, the destruction of um, the island. Um, basically, her tapping into the Amethyst Obelisk, which is a living obelisk as opposed to the other obelisks that may or may not be. Um, first of all, they cause the obelisks to follow her, and they've been following her sort of slowly since she's been traveling here. Which Tonki were. Right, and so that, that, so Spencer, you were wondering how Tonki found her. I was, I was not wondering that. I was wondering yes. Tonki's own personal ability to get into the scene and for how long that was. But you guys have reminded me right. and clarified a couple details there. Yeah, so I mean, also she could have just triangulated like two or three obelisks. Though I'm sort of wondering like why obelisks weren't hovering over um, the town that she was in. But anyway. Move really um, slow, really slow. Right, so her tapping into the obelisks basically made it so that she was hooked into the Stone Eater. And that's sort of when Hoa comes to find her, or whatever. About 20 years after she took, she got hooked in. Right, but, you know, we sort of, A, don't know how long that takes, and also, B, it could very well be that kind of similar to donkey he's been sort of hanging around her Mm -hmm. and is only now approaching her and now that like she's not surrounded by people and her children and whatever else and that the sort of like quote-unquote time is right right and lastly and this kind of you know after like all of the bombs that have been dropped were was i would say almost equally shocking Mm -hmm. we find out that ho is the narrator true that is a reveal uh seemingly significant yeah it is and it's also notable that it's significantly apparently after the fact of where... And it's also still talking to us. It's almost like... I almost got notebook flashbacks that he's reading the book to us again so we remember. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I sort of wonder if that's sort of like the... What uh, Alabaster's Stone Eater... Uh, I'm blanking on the name again, too. Antimony. Uh, Antimony? Antimony has been doing. And I had a metric to, or, or a mnemonic to try and remember it, which was, it's the beginning of the Element song. Um, <laughs> Whatever works for you, BJ. Do, do you know the Element song? I do not know the Element song. We'll do that okay, off so, We'll do that off yeah, we'll, we'll do that off pod. Um, and so, basically, it's the, once they're together long enough, maybe there's some, like, more... Uh, intimate isn't has connotation or, or connotations that aren't quite what I mean, but like the denotation of that like very close relationship that they presumably will end up having, and that's kind of the uh, story that goes along with it. Um, and so that's sort of what I wonder is like eventually that happens, and either they get sick or you know when they start turning to stone, that's kind of the all right, well. You know, here's the the story of like what how this all happened. Uh, I, I said there had another thought. I remembered I was pissed off at Alabaster in the scene, but I didn't couldn't remember why when I was saying it. <laughs> the other reason I was pissed off was that uh, he's angry at her for what she did to Corundum, their son. Remind me, didn't he specifically tell her to do that? Yes, he did. Yeah, mm-hmm. but but that okay, Spencer. Like, it sure. doesn't have to be rational. Fine, I get it. But but there. But I feel like it. It is. And a very 
kind of normal emotional reaction and something that he essentially he said at the time <laughs> he did like you need to do this and i'm going to hit you for it i don't remember that second part of that but it's a it's a fair enough reasonable conclusion from it regardless is that even if it was the thing that was necessary to do and even if i told you to do it it's something that cannot be forgiven just, just regardless of its necessity yeah i'm I with mean, you like, he's still a dick i was gonna say like plenty of marriages in this world break up when trauma happens yeah. like How- i think that that's not at all unreasonable it is however you wish to describe what their relationship was and is now they were parents they were co-parents i mean i did I, I think that's a you know maybe not married but about as close as you can get in this sort of world mm-hmm. well do we want to end things up here and go through what will probably be another two hours of <laughs> questions and themes and <laughs> ponderings that we have before this uh over the course of this novel if we limit ourselves um, it might be yeah <laughs> we'll i mean focus i guess on the main ones um one of the things that, that i was sort of curious and i feel like spencer i've talked a little bit about it but like sarah so when you were reading this like what was your sense of this character and her development because i feel like there is a very there is a character arc here that that i feel like has appropriate literary themes that i feel like somebody who's qualified to address them should do so rather than a, just saying, well, this is what happened. <laughs> you mean in terms of the sort of like Demaya to Cyanite to Esun? Well, that and just also Esun's like progression. Oh yeah. I mean, Esun's, I mean, it, 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 yeah, I think Esun's progression itself is super, super interesting. I think you can talk about it in a number of different ways. I think you know one of one of the most obvious and one that we've we've touched on a little bit is um, the sort of understanding of trauma and how you deal with that. And I think um, kind of as we were talking about at the very beginning of this episode, the the stylistic and writerly way that Jemison really decides to portray Essun's um, grappling with trauma is super interesting um, and super like invested. It, like it's actually really invested in kind of trauma theory and and what happens with with that. Um, now, the, the, where this book ends in terms of that particular arc um, is all fucked up. But you know, I think you can think about it. The way I think about it is in terms of that because I think what you really get is a sort of like journey of someone who has been kind of deeply brutalized by the circumstances around her and that kind of like process of journeying as we've talked about like there's not really a lot that happened i mean things happen i guess yeah but compared to the rest of the novel not much happens in essence chapters but i think as we have discussed a little bit the process of journeying is super important in that kind of narrative trajectory yeah so that's how um, i think about it i guess sort of the other thing that i find interesting is like we talk about so many traumas that this character has gone through and sort of each time she snaps a little bit but this was the most like withdrawal Mm -hmm. reaction rather than some other you know the other reactions that you know her character has essentially had um or or cyanide has had or demaya has had to the various uh various traumas that that her character has gone through so many times throughout this book yeah well and this is i mean i think that this is probably the biggest trauma that we get her immediately post kind of break um you know demaya herself certainly has has kind of um moments of stress and trauma 
in her narrative arc, but we end with kind of the biggest break. Um, and then the same thing happens, I think, with Cyanite. And Cyanite, as kind of a future version of Demaya, like a lot of time has passed there. But right. when we get introduced to Esun, like she is right in the midst of this <laughs> physical world shattering thing, as well as her kind of like personal world shattering moment when she yes. realized that her hus- r- realizes that her husband has has murdered their child um, and stolen their other child. And, um, you know, we are we are right in the midst of it there. And we are right in the midst of it in this kind of perspective thing that we've been talking about as well. I mean, Demaya and Cyanite were much more distanced from them in a narrative perspective as well. And so because yeah. we are personally implicated in this narrative, it is a lot more of like, well, here you are, figure it out. Um, and that, so all of that together makes, I think for a, like Asun's narrative, and the way we experience it and the way that it's told and kind of what it's doing is actually is very different from um, Demaya's and Cyanite's narratives. Yeah. And I, and I think it's very clear that it was written that way, mm-hmm. using the second person as opposed to the third person. And, and um, I think maybe we can get even further into that in the, the fourth uh, episode where we can talk about all of our questions and sort of the book as a whole. Yeah. Um, and go from there because I know it is late on the sad coast and uh, I know Spencer's going to be up for another four or five hours but I am not I assume Sarah you go to sleep at normal hours I do so. it's past my bedtime <laughs> well, I think we've got plenty to talk about for another episode or however many more but we'll limit ourselves <laughs> to one episode just for the sake of trying new things yep but um, um, I think we, uh, is it reasonable enough to reveal what we've talked about in terms of uh, what material we're going to be reading after this? I think we have a plan. Um, yes, okay. I, I definitely think we do. Um, so uh, I can what? also reveal that I've downloaded every single episode now of <laughs> LeVar Burton's Reads. Quality um, material. Yeah. But um, we, we figured that uh, having gone through a very dense, packed, debate-worthy novel that will probably lead us to reading more than of of the series before we're done, Mm -hmm. or having me read the second to catch up with you two, apparently. Um, I haven't read the second. And I will need very much a reread. I have, like, three moments that are very ingrained in my mind, and that's about it. Yeah, I've gotten some spoilers from my girlfriend who was just like, oh, wait, you didn't read it yet? (laughs) Okay. It's so frustrating that happens. Yeah. Uh, but we figured we'd take a bit of a break and read a short story, to which we then, not having really any clear idea of what we should focus on, decided to go through the list of uh, Hugh- a recent Hugo Award winners. Describing, deciding that the 2019 Hugo Award winner would be a bit too much of a lightning rod that we'd be uncomfortable necessarily discussing, we went with 2018 instead, which we found that, Sarah, you had actually read before. Yes. Yes, or well, listened listen to. to. Yes, um, the dulcet <laughs> and, tones of LeVar Burton um, guided me towards this particular story. So, so Spencer, this might help you out. It's episode twenty-five. I actually have a copy just because I found I found it from googling it. So, but oh, yeah, fair I see, enough. I see now it is twenty-five. <laughs> but it not to be coy. We're being way too alabaster about this now. Uh, it, the name of the short story is "Welcome to Your Authentic Indian Experience," which, based on the link, TM, based on on the book jacket description that I'm reading right now, is described as a tour guide leads virtual reality experiences. For tourists who want to know what it's like to be a Native American, think Black Mirror meets West. Well, that just sounds like a delight to read, and I'm looking forward to having LeVar Burton really do a complete polar opposite shift to how I remember him from my childhood in reading yep. what's going to be what seems to be a dark and twisted world. This will be fun. 
The voice um, is the so same, I, think I will say. <laughs> yeah, Rebecca Roanhorse yes. is the author. Yes. Gotcha. Um, and so we also discuss most likely the next novel that we're going to do, though we might do a couple more short stories beforehand, mm-hmm. is a um, ton of French uh, novel called... Uh, <laughs> the the Likeness. Yeah, The Likeness. Thank you. Uh, the second book in the series, but per- apparently I've been told that it's not necessary to read them in order. And, uh, and I believe you were also told it was the best in the series, so might as well start there. Yep, or at least a, a really good uh, vignette in it. Um, and so um, I guess I should try and take us out by telling everybody that you can see all of our content on mangumtalks.com. Um, if you have any suggestions, comments, questions, um, we know we have many, but <laughs> you can click the link on the top right that says contact us and uh, somebody may or may not reply to you, but we will try and get to uh, any of that on our podcast. Um, and you can see all of our content there or Apple iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you get it. We have Whiskey on the Weekends with myself, Spencer, uh, Levi and Lee. Um, we just did uh, an episode or two and those should go up at some point though i don't have any control over those um i can just harangue people um (laughs) there's supposedly mangum hoops where lee and levi discuss basketball but that's been a on a little bit of a hiatus there used to be got questions (laughs) but you can go through all of the past episodes which i highly recommend and thoroughly enjoy um where they discuss all of the goings on of uh the game of thrones tv series and a bunch of uh what spencer likes to do which is book nerd bitching and um then Lee and I supposedly have a podcast that we will <laughs> definitely continue. Um, and I have watched the thing that we're doing next, which is uh, Mangum Laughs, where Lee and I watch some stand-up alone and very sober and completely dislike it because that is definitely not the way to consume it. <laughs> um, and if any of those sound interesting to you, you can find them on Mangum Talks, as I said, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks, y'all. Looking forward to next week when we finish off the fifth season and then move on to other great works. But till then, keep reading and uh, looking forward to your questions. Are we out? All right.
like, 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 like,